0: This podcast is brought to you by Cyberattacks can be prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.
1: It's August, yet the news has not slowed down even a bit. We will be talking about the fateful verdict in Pittsburgh. Is Israel heading toward a constitutional crisis? And yes, we will be dedicating a large portion of our program to Barbie, just as it should be. It's unholy. I'm Yanit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv.
2: And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy Two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Um, As you mentioned, uh, our last one before a little bit of a summer break and to get myself in the holiday mood... um, I did go and see Barbie. Um, it is true to say that such is my commitment to Unholy that I went to see the movie. That it is, you know, I may not on my own, left to my own devices, have bought a ticket. I was getting the odd... Uh, Strange look from my fellow cinema goers. Um, but yeah, there we we will get into that in, in a big way. Um, there was lots to talk about and lots Jewishly to talk about. Barbie, I'm guessing that you went to see the film not wholly or solely out of professional obligation and duty. You know, know,
1: first of all, I just want to stop and say, pause and say, I'm so proud of what this podcast can achieve. I mean, taking a top British intellectual, (laughs) sending him on assignments to see Barbie. I mean, no, you thought you'd escape this, but she got her pink cl- clutches all over you. And I, I'm I'm, I'm, proud. I'm proud of Unholy. Look, in all seriousness, we should say, you kind of mentioned this, there's a clear Jewish angle to the Barbie story. Her creator is Ruth Handler, uh, uh, who is Jewish. There's a clear Israeli angle to it. The CEO of Mattel is Israeli known Christ, who will be our guest in this uh, program. So this story really is in our wheelhouse or in our Barbie dream house, whatever you want to think about it. I saw it as well. We did, both did our homework. There's a lot to talk about. But uh, before I think diving into fiction, uh, we should talk a little bit about reality, no?
2: We should. And um, reality, particularly of a very kind of sobering kind, coming out of the United States with a verdict. We uh, already had had the verdict in Pittsburgh uh, of guilt for Robert Bowers for committing the gravest, most lethal anti-Semitic attack in American history. It happened. Uh, in on October the 27th, 2018. The jury in Pittsburgh had already found him guilty of all 63 counts of federal crimes, hate crimes, murder, a whole string. What was still to be decided was the sentence. And on Wednesday, the judge in the case uh, announced that the jury had decided unanimously that the gunman should be sentenced to death. Apparently, the jury had deliberated for 10 hours over this question. The relatives and survivors of the attack had themselves been quite divided about whether or not they were seeking a death sentence. There'd been no consensus on that, but the that is the verdict, and so Robert Bowles will be put to death. I mean, we should say it's not going to be immediate. This is the United States. What then follows is years, possibly even decades, of appeals and process, as it will go through higher and higher courts. But that is the sentence that's been passed. And it prompted just two sort of thoughts with me. The first was about, and you'll remember because I talked about it on here, about my own visit to the Tree of Life Community, when I was in Pittsburgh in the autumn last year, I was there to cover the uh, midterm elections in Pennsylvania. And I say community rather than synagogue because they are not, they are no longer meeting in the building. That building is still, you know, a murder scene and a crime scene and has been sort of fenced off and, re, you know, rebuilding work is going on there. And instead they'd be relocating to another. Synagogue where they were gathering. And it was a very, very poignant visit because it was a small congregation, it was a small gathering that evening, Friday evening. And I spoke to people there afterwards. And the rabbi said to me, Look, you know, it's partly due to the pandemic and uh, and so on, but it's partly because some people just could not um, recover their faith after what they'd been through uh, in October 2018. So the community there is still hugely in the shadow. Of that event. And then the other thing that came to my mind was just this death sentence and what, you know, how that sits with us as Jews, because Jews have had historically a very ambivalent relationship to the death penalty. And and that ambivalence extends to Israel itself. Mm
1: -hmm. It it, it does indeed. I mean, uh, uh, Israel abolished the death penalty uh, for murder in 1954. It's still in the books for. Uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes against the uh, Jewish people. It was handed down only twice in the history of the country. Uh, 1948, is, uh, Mayor Tobanski is uh, an IDF officer uh, executed for espionage charges, by the way. Later, it was clear that he was uh, innocent. But of course the most famous story uh, in Israel uh, is Adolf Eichmann uh, for his part, executed for his part in uh, perpetrating the Holocaust. This is 1962. Ever since, not used in Israel, as I said, uh, officially also abolished even before, there have been calls in the Israeli right to bring it back for terrorists. That is a whole big argument, but essentially, Israel being slightly an exception in the Middle East for not uh, having uh, a death uh, penalty Penalty used. I have to tell you, uh, Jonathan, another thing from the Israeli kind of perspective is just how the effects of this uh, horrendous murder massacre, uh, essentially, uh, uh, affected, I think, the Jewish community in the United States. In Israel, it's always, you can't have enough security, but I think something changed very dramatically for the Jewish community, uh, in America after this and the beefed up security that they have now, not only in synagogues, not only on holidays, but also in JCCs and Jewish centers and in, in, in Jewish schools. This is all a lot of work from, I think, particularly uh, the JFNA that that sort of um, found funding and, and and secured funding from Congress to help with that because that is something that has become very very important. The world we live in, we're fortunate enough to not have an incident of this magnitude happen again, but we're unfortunate when we look at the the data and the anti-Semitism that's just on the rise. And I think that the Jewish community is very smart to to be um, to secure themselves.
2: Yeah, it's one of the big differences, Um, I was going to say, between Jewish life and non-Jewish life in the diaspora. In other words, it's one thing that Jews always cite to explain to non-Jews why antisemitism is not just a historical phenomenon, part of the past, but instead part of the lived reality of Jewish lives today. Jews will often say, my kids have to go go through security to go to their school, yours don't, if they're talking to somebody not Jewish and their kids go to a Jewish school. And they also say, look, we have to have security outside our house of worship. You know, you, meaning other religions and faiths, do not necessarily have to take that precaution. It's one of the ways of explaining Jewish life to, in diaspora, but not only to, uh, to non-Jews, but also to Israelis. I think it is something that when Israelis are in, say, Britain or Europe or the United States, it can pull up people short to realize that there are, you know, guards, sometimes even armed guards outside synagogue buildings in a way that, that would obviously not be, uh, you know, imaginable elsewhere. On this point of attitudes, I think it's, uh, interesting your point about Israel being an, a sort of outlier within its region, even in sort of, in the, in diaspora communities, Jews are more opposed to the death penalty than others. I mean, there was Gallup polling in the United States showed only 54% of Jews believe the death penalty was ever morally acceptable, which is interesting because that's still a majority, even though, um, but that number was lower than it was for Catholics. Among religious groups, the lowest support for the death penalty is among Jews. And there is just this fascinating sort of ambivalence in Jewish texts about this. I mean, that, and rabbis do debate this, Mm -hmm. where some see a kind of reticence about the a death penalty whereby so many obstacles are set in the way of it being implemented as if to make it almost functionally impossible to carry out you know there's according to the mission there's the you know important Jewish text there's this requirement that every capital case has to be decided by a sanhedrin of 23 judges uh, if the conviction is unanimous but rendered too quickly the accused is acquitted because it's assumed that the case has not been adequately considered or consider the possibility of the defendant's innocence so on the one hand there's all that on the other you look at the book and the books and the Torah mm-hmm. has you know a range of penal uh, of crimes whereby you should be you know with a, the sentence's execution from violating the Sabbath to a whole yes, range sometimes of meticulously
1: sins. detailed execution <laughs>
2: That's right. Oh, my word. The way the the the, <laughs> the uh, penalty is administered, it can be really blood-curdling. So, and yes. the paradox, uh,
1: of course, in Israel being that even if Jewish law, you know, discusses this, as you says, the, the, say the Torah does, but the Jewish courts in the land of Israel are secular, so the rabbinical institution did not, you know, want that to be in the power of the courts. Um, so, that's an interesting sort of twist inside everything that we're talking about.
2: Completely, because that actually goes to this point about even if it's technically, theoretically allowed, no one really wants to sort of yep. implement it, um, there's this sort of reluctance about it. And that was borne out, uh, it seems, in the Pittsburgh Tree of Life community itself, where there was deep ambivalence about this. There was no consensus on whether or not this would be uh, the appropriate punishment. As it turns out, that was not their decision, of course. It's the decision of the jury, and the jury, after 10 hours of deliberation, have decided dis- to dismiss the pleas that this was somehow the killer was swayed by mental illness and rather they said no he is fit to be judged in this way and they have passed the ultimate sentence on him so and by the way just as a final thought on this interesting observation from one of the people involved one of the gr- those grieving saying that this confirms that jewish lives count in american life that for some time there'd been a sense that violence against jews didn't quite sort of matter as much to Americans and this has uh, put that aside the that view and instead made um, made it very clear that this will be treated as a as seriously and as gravely as any other racially motivated masculine <laughs>
1: So, uh, moving from diaspora to Israel, this week uh, we uh, saw—we were 10 days after the legislation passed, the first part of the judicial overhaul, the reasonableness clause, or uh, rather striking down the reasonableness uh, clause. This week has been, uh, I'm I'm hesitant to say, relatively quiet by Israeli standards. I should make that very, very clear. This is the state of the play. We have heard from a number of Likud ministers— something like a mini-rebellion, maybe, people like uh, Yuli Edelstein, Gila Gamliel, David Bitan, saying, you know, out loud, yes, we voted with this, but don't you count on our vote next time. Many people have thought that this is a spin meant to calm the streets down more than anything. There's another option, which is they are just simply uh, fed up with Yerev Levine, the justice minister, running the show, and they want to say this is, you know, enough is enough for us. The protest movement on the other side uh, will continue. It was week thirty. On Saturday, the protest movement in Israel is entering its eighth-month massive demonstrations, um, mainly in Tel Aviv, Kaplan Street. The plan is to continue, maybe less centers, but still going to continue throughout August. That is that side, and most importantly, all eyes on the date, 12th of September The Supreme Court uh, sets an official date to hear petitions against Netanyahu's overhaul bill. For the first time in history, 15 judges will sit in judgment. And the big question, will they strike down this legislation? Remember, it is an amendment to the basic law. So the question is, will they essentially deem this an unconstitutional constitutional amendment? Esther Hayut, Chief Justice, will be stepping down in October. So this might be uh, a historic moment uh, for her.
2: Yeah, and just on that, I think it's worth noting that in his uh, never-ending round of interviews with American broadcasters and journalistic outlets— In uh, English.
1: (laughs) In English,
2: where he feels sort of safer somehow. He was asked by Wolf Blitzer, if the Supreme Court uh, strike down this move, will he accept that judgment? And he very pointedly and noticeably did not say, to not commit to accepting that view slight echo there of you know Donald Trump not saying he w- in advance that he would accept the verdict of the electorate relevant in the week that Donald Trump's indicted for conspiring to uh, uh, overturn the uh, or seeking to overturn the results of the 2020 election that thing of the populist leader who says kind of will i accept the constitutional process well depends depends if it finds in my favor or not you know if it doesn't no guarantees i thought that was significant and i also thought not that we're going to preempt our own choice of chutzpah nominee because that comes later in the episode but i did think um uh it was a little example of chutzpah that Netanyahu, when asked about this point, said, look, this is like the US Supreme Court throwing out a constitutional amendment as unconstitutional. Well, no, it really, you know, it really is not anything like that at all. Um, without getting into a civics lesson, the Israel parliament with just one vote. Let's get into a
1: civics lesson on that.
2: <laughs> it's just, it is such a chutzpah to say it because the, of course, the, the, you can change the constitution by a single vote in this one chamber parliament. 61 votes is enough. You attach the word basic and you've suddenly changed the constitution just by passing a normal law. If the comparable situation in America to change the constitution is the house, the Senate, the President, and 38 of the 50 states all have to approve a change. It is not the same thing. Of course, the Supreme Court in America would not be in a position to do that because it would have gone through all those other hurdles and hoops. In this case, there's been nothing like that. It is the whim of the sitting government of the day. And it is a classic move by Netanyahu, who, because of his American-accented English, manages to speak seem authoritative about how America works and how it compares to Israel. No comparison. Do not allow uh, yourself to be bamboozled. And it was a chutzpah of him to say it in my view, but at the key point, not committing to going abiding by the verdict on September the 12th.
1: I want to add to what you're saying, and you're completely accurate. Basic laws in Israel can be changed with a regular majority. That is a huge difference. And I'm sure that the prime minister did not forget that. But I want to emphasize the fact that time and time again, not only in this interview uh, with Wolf Blitzer on CNN, he refuses to say clearly that he will abide by the high court's ruling on this uh, judicial overhaul law. This is a massive thing to, to consider. Now, many have pointed out that what he's trying to do here is to send a signal to the judges, because Israel's court has never with all its powers, never struck down a basic law. And he's trying to send a message to them saying, I don't believe they're actually going to do that. But if you're trying, and first of all, you know, you're the prime minister of the country, you need to adhere to the rule of law. But if you're trying to send a message at the same time, right, calling it minor changes and saying democracy is, is, Israel is going to remain a democracy, how are you calming anyone by not clearly saying that you would adhere to a Supreme Court's decision?
2: So the Deus ex machina that some people are hoping for here—the thing that for, that could come and somehow upend the whole drama—is this talk? And we, you know, Tom Friedman talked about it on the podcast a couple of weeks back. Is this talk of a potential breakthrough with Saudi Arabia and some kind of normalization deal, where maybe the price could be that somehow, if Israel's to get the signature it wants on this deal? it has to row back on on the current sort of course of action. I, you know, I don't know what you're hearing on that, but to me, that's, you know, is, is that just sort of wishful thinking? It did happen once before with the Abraham Accords where Israel Netanyahu had to put the brakes on plans to annex the West Bank. Instead, that was the price to get, you know, a handshake with the United Arab Emirates and so on. But how likely is this, or is this fantasy talk, do you think, Yoni?
1: Look, if this is to happen, and we should remember this is, the big story is the United States recalibrating its relationship with Saudi Arabia. Israel is, as much as we like to think of ourselves like the center of everything, Israel is a small part of this whole story. And the theory goes like this. First of all, if it is to happen, there is a window of six to eight months in which the Biden administration can have its Attention to it, have the bandwidth to deal with it. MBS might be on board, Netanyahu might be on board, and then this could happen. But politically in Israel, and we don't know what the price that Israel will have to pay on the Palestinian uh, in the Palestinian realm will be, but it, there will be something, that is for sure. And in the internal Israeli politics right now dictate that it will be impossible for Netanyahu to hold together this far right ultra nationalist government with some sort of Uh, concessions to the Palestinians. So in that scenario, and again, we're all in the hypothetical, right? He will have to, his coalition will somehow break apart. Ben Gvir and Smotrich being the unruly, more extreme elements will have to leave the the, the coalition. And somehow for this historic moment, Benny Gantz, Yair Lapid, Yair Lapid leader of the opposition, Benny Gantz, uh, the strongest person in the poll, will somehow form a government with Netanyahu. By the way, they are saying they will not Ben Gvir is saying clearly, oh, if this is the scenario that will happen next elections, I'm going to get not 14 seats, but 30 seats. But remember, this is a historic story. If it does happen, it will, first of all, change the makeup of the government and change the whole story of the judicial overhaul will have to uh, halt because there will be no uh, way that this will move forward. There are so many moving parts in this story I threw out to you that Scenario that eventually Benjamin Netanyahu will be the person sent by the Biden administration to try and convince some of the Republicans reluctant to vote for this in Congress, why they should vote for this. That would be a paradox upon paradox or irony upon irony, whatever you want to think about it. I think we're still pretty far, but Ellie Cohen, who's the Minister of Foreign Affairs, said on Channel 12 this week, we are closer than we ever were to this kind of normalization with Saudi Arabia. So things are, are happening. I don't think we're seeing the whole picture yeah. <laughs> But this is, we're the land of the impossible. I think that this this is definitely a possibility.
2: It's so interesting. It's something you can imagine the Biden administration wanting on multiple levels. They would love to have a big foreign policy trophy going into, November, into 2024, a re-election year, re-election campaign. It also is a way for them immediately to lance the boil of the judicial uh, overhaul, which they have not liked. And this would be a way to two birds with one stone, isn't it? because you get a peace a normalization deal in the region, and you get to solve what has become a headache for them, this uh, departure from the shared values script by Israel. What's clever about how you've explained it, I think, and it's really interesting, is it's not literal, it's not direct. It's not, in other words, as if Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia says, I'd love to do a deal with you, Israel, but first you do have to, you know, reestablish the reasonableness clause in your unwritten constitution. It doesn't work like that. Rather, as you've explained, Mm. the price he might demand on, broadly defined, the issues around occupation, West Bank, settlements, Palestinians, will be too high for the, I'm going to say outriders, but they're not because they're they're central figures in the coalition, Smotrich and Ben-Gvir. The only thing I just was wondering that could upset this Apple cart is if Smotrich and Ben Gvir think we don't like the look of those polls, we're not going anywhere, we're not going to give you the resignation you, Mr. Biden, want, we're going to stay put and swallow it on Saudi Arabia. That is, you know, unlikely, but you could conceive of it. And then, of course, I suppose, is if Ya Lapid and Benny Gantz, as you said, don't play ball and don't go into some kind of national unity administration, but instead say, um, we're going to take our chances with an election, and the Saudi deal will have to wait until Israel has a new government ready, To sign. I mean, I you know, I don't know how likely or improbable any of these things are, but it just shows you, as you said, multiple moving parts, a uh, very very complex story. But uh, that could be the next twist in this drama.
1: So, Jonathan, you were uh, talking about twists and dramas, and that is my cue to pivot us to another kind of drama. I think we need a little bit of pink in our lives, so may I change gears from BB Land to Barbie Land because we want to talk a little bit about that now, and to present our special guest for this week, um, Inon Kreis is the CEO of Mattel, one of the most successful Israeli businessmen in the world. He spent years in the television business, we should say, Fox Kids Europe and Endemol and, and CEO of Maker Studios. But when he took the reins of Mattel in uh, 2018, he decided to sort of reshape this toy giant and into a content factory. One of his ideas today is, ha- is turned into a box office bonanza, I suppose, uh, you've heard of it. It's called Barbie. It's uh, directed by uh, Greta Gerwig and starring uh, Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, America Frera. Um We uh, really are excited to have you on the show, Enon. thanks for joining us on Unholy.
0: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: There's so much to talk about. Let's start with, this is actually your idea. So tell us about it.
0: Yes, well... Uh, when I joined the company, uh, we put together a strategy to transform Mattel to become an IP-driven, high-performing toy company. This is to say we didn't decide to exit the toy business and start to make content only, but we said, let's fix the toy side of the company, which is a great foundation uh, for our core business, and then continue to expand the scale of the company and our business model to capture full value from our intellectual properties. and a key part of that, a key tenant of that was uh, to get into films. Uh, And that was uh, one of the very first projects um, we initiated when I joined the company to uh, set up and, and start the Barbie movie project way back in the day, five years ago.
2: And a brilliant idea, I thought, to really lean into the fact that some people love it, some people hate it. That's part of the uh, branding and the trailer message and going for this kind of hipster royalty in Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach to the you know director, the writer, and that way making it not just seem appealing to all the people who've grown up with Barbie and love it from childhood, but actually a whole other audience who would be quite sort of cool and sceptical and perhaps even anti-Barbie and to make them part of it too. Was that also your thinking?
0: Yeah, the goal from the beginning was not just to make a movie, but to create a cultural event, a societal moment. And we also said this is not about selling toys. The The goal was to create quality content, an experience, uh, content that people would want to watch. And we always said if people will watch our content and have a, a, a strong emotional engagement with the movie, good things will happen. And we know we will sell a lot of toys, but it wasn't about trying to sell or to create a movie in order to to amplify toy sales. It was meant to be an experience in and of itself. Uh, and this is really the mission also of Mattel Films. Uh, it's not about trying to drive toy sales, but to create holistic experience. <laughs>
1: I'm looking at three of us in this conversation thinking probably the person with the most hours playing with Barbies, just a guess, a wild guess, is probably not the two of you. And, and this leads me, leads me to my next question, which is, I mean, it, really this is an attempt to sort of remake or retell the Barbie story as a feminist story, make her into a feminist icon. I'm not going to spoil the, the story of the plot, but it's really Barbie, you know, owning her own story. And the question that sort of I had while watching it is, is, and I assume I'm not the only one, isn't Barbie herself part of the problem because she has she it has been blamed for years for being you know uh, upholding these impossible standards for women making women feel terrible because they can't live up to those standards it's part of the the discussion in the film itself I guess what I'm asking you you know is can you make the feminist case for Barbie
0: Barbie's purpose is to inspire the limitless potential in every girl and Barbie has been a flag carrier for diversity inclusivity and female empowerment. What, what Greta Gerwig did, the genius of Greta Gerwig is that she took that message and made a movie that is relevant to everyone. The target audience of the film was of course, Barbie fans of all ages, but also anyone who's looking to be entertained and inspired by a modern day interpretation of one of the most iconic brands in in modern culture. And this is really what this movie is about. It's a big, bold comedy with heart uh, that brings together fashion, music, humor, uh, self-deprecation with many iconic uh, cultural moments. And uh, th- this is really what made it so strong, so successful, and so appealing to audiences everywhere.
2: We're going to get onto the Jewishness of Barbie, uh, soon because there's lots to talk about there. There are many surprises in the whole Barbie story, which we'll come on to, but there are quite a few surprises in the Barbie film. I have to say one thing I was not expecting was that the CEO of Mattel is one of the characters in the <laughs> film played by Will Ferrell. You are the CEO of Mattel. So what is that like sitting there watching? your, you know, it's not you, it's your position being inhabited by Will Ferrell. And you've got to explain to me, because I didn't get it, it completely when I saw it, that the all-male board, I'm sure you don't have an all-male board of executives at, at Mattel, but, would, you know, tell me what we should be making of that and, and seeing yourself as Will Ferrell.
0: Yes, the movie has a lot of surprising moments, and this is one of them. I'm a big fan of Will Ferrell. Ever since the Zoolander days, he's uh, he's a great actor. He's hilarious in the movie, and we, of course, embraced self-deprecation. It was part of uh, Greta's interpretation of the narrative, and we were in in, in on the fun. Uh, we take what we do very seriously. We take our product very seriously, uh, but we don't take ourselves very seriously. And we were willing to uh, play along and be part of uh, part of this narrative. And of course, Mattel is a very diverse company. Uh, half of our independent directors are women, uh, five out of 10. And of course, um, the way the board is depicted in the movie is part of the narrative of the movie. In real life, Mattel uh, is really leading the way uh, in diversity, inclusivity.
1: So so Jonathan mentioned this but of course uh, also a character in the film rather importantly is is Ruth Handler the creator of Barbie uh, who was Jewish. It does I mean you know she created this perfect initially the stereotype Barbie doll as you call in the movie blonde blue eyes tall maybe not the first sort of image handy for every Jewish woman. Do you think it's a story I mean originally a story of assimilation of her trying to be that kind of doll, maybe.
0: No, you know, uh, Ruth created something very special. And the fact that we're sitting here today, 64 years after she invented uh, Barbie speaks for itself. know, I think it's first, uh, it's important to say that Barbie is the most diverse doll line on the market today. And over half of the Barbie dolls that are being sold are diverse, not the original uh, Barbie. Uh,
1: What do you mean by diverse? Can you sort of run through that for a second? Yeah,
0: so you have um, uh, different body shapes, different skin tones, hairstyles. There are 175, more than 175 different looks for Barbie. Mm -hmm. And the original Barbie, the blonde, blue-eyed Barbie, is less than half of the business. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it is very much, Barbie today is very much a reflection of the world uh, in the way children uh, see it and, and how they see the brand around them. And Barbie has uh, inspired careers, different careers among girls, including astronaut, pilot, firefighter, journalist, entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, Barbie traveled to space in 1965, four years ahead of Neil Armstrong. Uh, Barbie was a surgeon in 1973, where very few women were uh, working in the operating room. Barbie was already a CEO in 1985, so early on, uh, before women began to break the glass ceiling. And, of course, Barbie ran for president in 1992 already uh, and has run for presidency ever since. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot that Barbie did to inspire different careers and really uh, be a flag carrier for opportunities uh, for young girls to imagine and achieve great
2: things. But I, ju- I just want to keep pressing on this Jewish thing, because to me, it can't be irrelevant that her creator was Ruth Handler, not just because Ruth Handler was Jewish, but because the story of Ruth Handler, which is itself so interesting, suggests there was some of what Yonit is talking about there. Because, you know, her husband was called Izzy, and I think it was her who said, actually, you should become Elliot. Instead, that's the L part of Matt L, because his business partner was known as Matt. There was this sort of drive to be, and it wasn't unique to Barbie or her. This drive to fit some kind of all-American ideal, and I think about those, you know, the first Hollywood studio bosses, and now Mattel is a movie company, who also created, you know, these most many of them Jews, the Warner Brothers, Sam Goldwyn, Harry Cohn, Louis B. Mayer, who had this ideal of the all-American white picket fence family life, and uh, it was a goal that in many ways was out of reach for them as Jews. And I'm wondering if a woman who looked like Ruth Handler created this—yes, I know it's diversified since—but originally, blonde, blue-eyed ideal, there was something quite Jewish about that. It was trying to um, embody something that was for them out of reach. I mean, it's not just us who think this, by the way. Uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, in in 2003, 20 years ago, outlawed Barbie temporarily saying, Jewish Barbie dolls with their revealing clothes and shameful postures are a symbol of decadence of the perverted West. Uh, You know, that's a long, that's 20 years ago. But the Jewishness of Barbie, there does seem something in that story.
0: Well, you know, it's true that the, the founders, the handlers were Jewish. But Barbie today is really a representation of the world through the eyes of children. Uh, It's not uh, trying or, or aiming to represent any particular heritage. It is really about being a representative of the world as children see it, being diverse. Also what the movie does, it really is about appealing to broad audiences And telling a narrative and also reflecting some of the history and how how Barbie came to be, but really reflecting the world through the eyes of children and speaking to broad audience um, uh, globally, not just Barbie fans, but to anyone who's looking to be um, entertained and inspired. And I think it's also worth uh, saying that for the movie, uh, what we see is that it's not just appealing to women, but we see men go... Groups of men go to watch the movie. Uh, Interestingly, also, the movie is doing very well internationally. Mm -hmm. So while Barbie, in some cases, uh, being perceived as an American icon, is is seeing such strong performance internationally, larger than or more higher box office numbers than the U.S., and it's not that the U.S. is not doing well. (laughs) Uh, So it's really uh, very much about um, international appeal. And, you know, Barbie today is a pop culture icon. Barbie is so much more than a doll. Mm. Uh it is a pop culture icon and this is really uh, playing out in 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 the part of the success of the movie. D-
1: there has been though uh sort of criticism uh, critique from the right calling this a woke film and saying it's anti-men certain uh right-wing pundits who have podcasts burning uh <laughs> Barbie dolls. Uh, what do you say to that to that uh, uh critique?
0: We think uh that the genius of Greta as I said, mm-hmm. is that she made this movie appealing to everyone mm-hmm. and trying to be true to the original narrative of Barbie, but expanding the story, broadening the story, and making it a cultural event. There are many elements in the movie. Um, you go to see it. Some people take uh, focus on the humor, either on the emotional part of it. Some people just enjoy the references to classic Movies in the narrative, mm-hmm. and you see people, same people, laugh, uh, you know, laugh, laugh out loud, and then fifteen or twenty minutes later, cry emotionally from what they see on the fi- on, on on the screen. So it is a a very fulsome experience that is very unique, and you have really a, a broad offering of music, which is as diverse and eclectic as what we see on the screen.
2: So um we need to talk about Ken, you know, and I think this is an <laughs> important subject Um because there was more of Ken in the film than I was expecting. As a brother of two older sisters, I remember the Barbie dolls, but, you know, I don't remember a Ken doll ever making it into our house. But um he is and his obsession with, you know, being doing good beach. He's constantly on the beach and it's volleyball and, you know, beach balls and so on. Then I read that you are a former windsurfing instructor and kitesurfing instructor, <laughs> and I th- the, the, the subversive thought crossed in my mind, which is not only are you there as Will Ferrell, but maybe you're Ken.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you heard that theory before.
0: <laughs> uh, I take it as a compliment, but uh, all kidding aside, uh, yes, Ken Ken is uh, is a key... Uh, key part of the narrative and the, the role that Ryan Gosling plays is just incredible. He, he really puts out a, a, an amazing performance. And of course, Margot Robbie as well. We have two superstars with an incredible cast that uh, are just, uh, you know, acting phenomenally and, and representing the, the, the characters so well. And Ken is a key part of the movie and is something that uh, Greta focused on. And Ryan really brought it to life in a in a way that uh, makes it uh, a very exciting part of the entire experience.
1: I gotta and, say, um, I, oh, sorry. And, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I, I actually saw a solution, a possible solution to Israel's judicial overhaul attempts to change the constitution in the film as well, I'm just saying.
0: So you see, <laughs> you <laughs> also you. found your own uh, narrative there <laughs> that appeals to you. So everyone finds something in this movie, and this is really the, the magic uh, that, yes. that happened here. And, and we're so proud of what Greta did. Uh, our role was to provide a creative platform to amplify Greta's vision and to create something very
2: special. I think they changed the constitution more democratically in Barbie land than they do it <laughs> in BB land. But I do want to ask no, you note about being... To Israeli,
1: note to Israeli uh, protest movements, send the men to the beach to fight and and continue with just look at the movie and see what they do. That's it
2: would be an improvement, but I want to ask you about being an Israeli <laughs> in business and in and in the movie business because th- we're very used to you know Jews have had a high profile in American uh, industry, uh, particularly in in films, going right back to the founding days of Hollywood. Uh, but Israelis less so, and I'm very interested to know what that's like. I mean, first of all, how does an Israeli? It's a small country, Israel. How does an Israeli get to be at the top of this very huge global company? But also whether you know whether you feel that you have the same sort of angle and voice on Hollywood and film and movies that American Jews have had for decades or whether being Israeli puts adds a very different dimension and what that different dimension might look like
0: look I'm uh, I'm very proud of my uh, Israeli background and heritage, very proud of uh, who I am and you know where my family is from and the language we speak at home and um, and everything that comes with it and you know it's hard to pinpoint and say what part of my background uh played or plays a role in what i do today but clearly this is part of of who i am i've been very fortunate and privileged to work at interesting companies uh outside of israel i never actually worked professionally in israel so uh, while i did go to university uh, to tel aviv university in my early days after that i Studied and worked um, abroad uh, in the U.S. and uh, the U.K. So um, it's, I guess, uh, a mixed background of uh, what I've done and what I did. But my Israeli background and heritage is very much part of uh, who I am.
1: I wonder if at the end of the day, being Israeli means you're more excited, you know, walking the red carpet in Hollywood or having your family and friends in Israel say, hey, I saw you on the red carpet in Hollywood. Like, what is the bigger sort of what make, moves you more?
0: You know, I, I always say I wish I could enjoy those moments because often what happens, you already think about uh, what's next. <laughs> the exciting part of, uh, of uh, what we do is, is when you realize that people who buy and engage with your product um, are not just consumers. They are fans. And as a company, uh, we really have an important role. You know, we have a societal impact on many people in that we shape, we help, not alone, of course, but we help shape future generations. We collaborate and partner with parents and families to instill positive values and drive important messages. All of our product, not just the company, but every one of our brands uh, has a purpose with something that provides another reason, uh, a reason to be, it's beyond the play system. It's uh, social values and uh, messages that we drive as a company. And playing in that role and, and, and um, have the opportunity to lead Mattel uh, into this chapter is very exciting overall. It's not just about one movie or one premiere or one red carpet. It's about the overall experience and opportunity.
2: When um, Mayim Bialik was on the podcast um, as an Israeli or Israeli-American in, in Hollywood, she made a really interesting observation that I wasn't necessarily expecting, which was that, you know, yes, a very comfortable place for Jews, but she said among kind of Hollywood liberals, Israel is not such a great selling point. Israel is not hugely popular, that there's a lot of resistance and opposition there and that she encountered and that she described sort of contending with. What's your impression of, of that? Just cause you're, you know, you're somebody who even before Mattel decades in this business. Entertain, American entertainment business fine for Jews but maybe a more a colder place for Israelis what's your experience
0: I think the uh, you know the world today is is an open field uh, in in our industry in every industry you have people from uh, practically almost every nationality um, uh, but it is fair to say that people are very focused and aware of what is happening in Israel right now and uh, and follow the news and uh, about uh, what is happening in the country. And like everyone, I, I really hope for um, a good outcome and bring uh, the people together ultimately in, in our homeland country.
1: You should force everyone in the Knesset to watch the Barbie film. Um, <laughs> that might help. Um, you know, and thank you so much, you know, Inon Kreis, CEO of Mattel. Thank you so much for talking to us.
0: Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, uh, you need Jonathan, great
2: to be here, thank you.
1: Thanks, Yunnan. Thank you, Yunnan.
2: Well, as I said, there are so many surprises and interesting things out of the Barbie movie. I confess I hadn't thought of the uh, judicial overall parallel, but it is definitely. <laughs> you
1: really did. I, I was sitting with two of my girlfriends there, uh, and they were both, they were all three of us were so like, that could solve everything. That moment yeah. where they take over the constitution. Yeah, just no.
2: And as I say, I think genuinely their method was more <laughs> democratic. Um, but no, I'm still of this view that Barbie does fit in uh, this long lineage of American Jews, particularly who had this aspiration. And I'm thinking, you know, just just since we talked about it, but Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster who created Superman. I think I may have mentioned before on the podcast the the novel *Cavalier and Clay* by Michael uh, Um Again, only one of my
1: favorite books. Only one of my favorite books of all time.
2: Okay, I mean, and well, if that's if you're packing summer reading books, that one and Yiddish Policeman's Union, I think are fantastic. But the point about *Cavalier and Clay*, the thing it touches on, is this fantasy in that particular case about you know Jewish power after the Holocaust and Jewish powerlessness. But you know, and you sort of very lightly touched on it, but. You know, Jewish women are not raised to think that their look is a beautiful look. And the idea of Ruth Handler, played well in the film, Rhea Perlman, uh, Mm -hmm. creates this impossible blonde-blue-eyed Aryan archetype. We should, you know, it's not a coincidence, is my point i you know i'm not sure uh you know massively wanted to go into all of that but to me it's it's their part you know it's part of the thing that makes this whole phenomenon really really interesting and the fact that there's an israeli at the head at the helm of this company just only adds another layer
1: i i agree uh, to me i i felt like the the film was sort of talking on these two levels one is to the generation of the mother like my generation right who played with the barbie dolls maybe realized that life isn't as simple as that Barbie image tried to sell you. And I had this film, this feeling like the film was sort of apologizing to those women in a way and also speaking at the same time to the generation of now the children of those mothers that already get that the world is, you know, in the world in words of the film, we are dark and crazy and trying to do that at the same time. Don't know how... Massively successful is is building this. Really, is a retelling of Barbie as a feminist icon. But again, I mean, there's a lot of questions, and of course, now we can't go on vacation because we need to do an Oppenheimer episode because you can't just do one, right? You just
2: and no shortage of Jewish content there. Um, (laughs) I can. I I confess, I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet. How uh, if you had to place a bet? which of these two films I would see first. I'm not sure I myself <laughs> if, would have said that Barbie would have If edged I it. had
1: to bet one of those two films that the 15-year-old Jonathan Friedland would see first, it's the same answer. So I don't <laughs> need to... If you had your own free, you know, uh, opinion on this, which you did not.
2: So. I, I did not, but you are worryingly accurate about my 15-year-old self. There is no contest in that department. Now, uh, I'm not sure we can hand out any Oscars, but we can hand out our own awards chutzpah and mensch. Are you going to go first or shall I?
1: So yes, uh, after 115 episodes of Unholy, I'm yet again stuck with the uh, chutzpah awards. I want to talk about a populist leader being indicted and blaming the judiciary for um, persecuting him, I'm, of course, talking about Donald J. Trump Um, (laughs) and and, uh, uh, the fact that he has been uh, charged by federal prosecutors this week over his efforts, uh, his third indictment over his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. He, uh, He is in our list. Because of what he said after, uh, I will uh, quote uh, from his uh, words, and uh, of course there are Jewish organizations who are very upset, but not only Jewish organizations, he uh, said that the charges are reminiscent of Nazi Germany and their Nazi persecution. That is what it reminds him of. Of course, many, many organizations being uh, pretty upset uh, about him uh, saying that. So I think we can give him a little bit of a chutzpah word for that.
2: Oh, such Maybe egregious, other things as well. <laughs> egregious chutzpah again. I mean, he just does it one time after another. This is probably, you know, probably the most serious indictment of all the indictments. And yeah, he claims the somehow the victim and they're the Nazis. I mean, it's so base and so low, a worthy. Winner with a heavy heart, um, for the Chutzpah award. Uh, for Mensch, a longtime listener sent in a little story about employees of Japan Airlines apologizing to passengers for a flight delay. And there's a picture to accompany this. It shows counter staff getting at the airport, getting up from their seats, standing in line and then bowing to apologize for the long delays, uh, that the, uh, customers of the airline had suffered. The message came to me from a long time unholy listener with the message, with the following additional thought. I can't help thinking LL staff wouldn't respond like this. Uh, attached to this picture of bowing air crew stewards and, uh, and counter, uh, you know, check in staff. I immediately, of course, forwarded that to you, Yonit, which enlisted an <laughs> interesting, some may say defensive. <laughs> response.
1: <laughs> An automatic response from me. I, I wrote to you instantly when you said, I can't help thinking allow staff, or you forwarded this, I can't help uh, thinking allow staff when not respond like this. I wrote, whereas British Airways crew would totally <laughs> bow to passengers. I've seen them do it a million times.
2: Um, <laughs> it's totally fair. Yes, um, And in a way, you sort of caught me out there because, you know, I was, the, it, the joke landed with me. I thought, oh, yeah, that's funny. LL staff, of course not. But you make it very fair. Point. Well,
1: First of all, it seems like I'm ready for my foreign, uh, foreign ministry position. No, I'm kidding. Look, what this obviously indicates is that Israelis feel very free to diss on Elal, the national carrier. But if anyone else does it, then they automatically get very upset. So that was what this was story. Uh, it's a indicates. bit
2: like Israel itself. Um, attitude there too. Maybe. And the national carrier is ca- covered with the same uh, blanket of protection, which is I can say what I like, but you can't. Uh, in some ways, the premise for the entire podcast that we're um, <laughs> doing here. Uh, anyway, mention of the week the counter staff at or mention plural for the uh, counter staff at Japan Airlines. For setting a lead, which no doubt LL staff will be first in line to replicate and follow next time <laughs> there is any kind of delay. Although I'm sure you'll, need, you'll tell me LL planes are never, ever delayed and only run with <laughs> exemplary perfect efficiency.
1: <laughs> Don't put me on the spot, but this is a good uh, segue talking about airlines and uh, crew to talk about our uh, going off or let's say attempting to go off because I think ever since we started this two and a half years ago, we never actually had a summer in which our planned hiatus stayed the same. There's always some sort of event that brought us back to updating you. And we will do that if need be, but we are taking a few weeks off and we will bring you, as become our tradition, our you know favorite conversations. Some of them are surprising. Um, and Jonathan, you have a good vacation. No ignoring my calls because I'm you think I'm calling you back to the unholy test. I probably am, but still don't ignore my calls.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, I, I, not, as, not that I've looked, but there's not any kind of blocking or filtering software <laughs> available um, to enable that uh, uh, any emergency calls that come will get through. And of course, we will be back if we need to be back. As Yonit says, we are going to make an attempt three years in to have an unbroken summer, it won't be uh, unbroken for all of you, though, if you're listening, because we will be bringing you some conversations we have loved each Friday, dropping into your podcast feed in the usual way. So, hopefully, it is a seamless service. If not, Yonita and I will stand in front of our little counters and bow in apology, Japan Airlines style. Um, you but go otherwise. First.
1: Um, But we will say our thank yous to our incomparable team. A huge thank you to Gaia Glazer and Omar Primat for putting up with all of our shenanigans, especially Jonathan's shenanigans. And thank you to Attic And we'll see you soon. Have a great summer. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by cyber attacks can be prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.